welcome Christian uh, Nimitz to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed for agreeing to talk to me. Oh, thank you. Um, just trying to think what's the best way to get going. So I thought probably what would be interesting to people is for them to know a little bit about you and your background and, uh, and how you came to join the IEA. All oh, right. Yeah, I was initially an intern here in 2006. And um, that was when I was still at university in Berlin. I then finished university back there and moved to London and in some roundabout way came back to the IEA then two years later. I was initially only here for two days a week, starting in 2008, writing a book on poverty measurement. And I was at King's College at the same time. I was uh, doing a PhD there on the same subject. I sort of converted what I did for the IEA into a thesis there and uh, was teaching economics there at the same time. And then once I was done at King's, I moved full-time to the IEA in, I think, must have been five years ago. And that sort of career track doesn't make too much sense to me because if you were a young Berliner, I would have thought by definition you would be left-wing. Well, that's, that's why I'm here. That's, uh, that's the whole point. Uh, because everybody else is, by definition, left-wing there. It's, um, yeah, it was a, a bit of a relief uh, when, when I lived here that it was more or less the first time that I could openly talk about my political views without everyone around me freaking out about it. And, yeah, if you are a classical liberal, a free marketeer, then, of course, uh, Berlin is a very hostile place. Even though in many other ways it's a great place to live, it is a great city, but if you care about political ideas and if you're so at odds with everyone else, then that does get, uh, that can be hard work in the long run. Yeah, I go to Berlin, uh, particularly for the film festival, I, I always enjoy it. Uh, it's a rotten time of year they have it, they have it in the middle of January where it's absolutely freezing. But uh, Yeah, the winters are grim. Mm, but yeah, Berlin's, uh, Berlin's a great city. Well, I do now. It's just that uh, you know you you need to avoid politics. But do you not think? Well, let me well, well, let me just ask you this. It seems like you, I mean you say that in uh, in Berlin you you maybe want to avoid talking about free market politics because that's sort of viewed with a certain amount of hostility. But do you not think that nowadays there's a lot more hostility to contrary political views than there maybe was I don't know five years ago or whatever. There seems to be a much more culture of silencing people in the UK than perhaps there was when you first came here. Yes, I definitely noticed that. Yes, that's that's true. It's um, it is becoming more like Berlin in but in a bad way. <laughs> yes. I, I, I would rather have Berlin drinking culture, alcohol prices, that kind of thing. Those are the things that you want to import from from that place, as well as uh, the quality of the housing and all that. Uh, maybe public transport, but. Uh, no, Britain seems to have a talent of adopting uh, and importing the worst bits from different places. Yes, I guess we're taking this sort of culture of intolerance, I suppose. We're, in, we're, we're importing it gradually from the United States, I think. Yeah, in, in this case, that's, that seems to be the case, that uh, this whole social justice culture at universities starting there and then radiating off, uh, going in, from there to other institutions. Yes it, uh, yes, it works this way. It's not just through institutions, it's through corporate life as well. It's, uh, it's quite, uh, it's, it's, it's strange how it sort of creeps up on you, I think. So, okay, so you joined the IEA. So what are, what are, what are the goals of the IEA? What, what does it sort of stand for? What's, what's its underlying beliefs? Well, we are the, the, the UK's original uh, free market think tank, the, the oldest 
free market classical liberal think tank it was set up in 1955 and uh, initially the 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 unofficial founding document so to speak of mm. the IEA is a paper written by the economist Friedrich Hayek in 1949 Hayek was writing about the the post-war consensus that was emerging at the time he moved to Britain partly because he associated Britain with uh, with classical liberalism, the, the tradition he saw himself in. And then he noticed, hang on, what's going on here? They're, they're, they're moving away from that at breakneck speeds. Right. They're, they're nationalizing half of their economy. They're bringing in price controls. They're expanding the size and scope of, of the state. Where, where's this country going? And uh, he started thinking about that and noticed that long before this had any policy implications, there was a change in the intellectual climate, in the climate of opinion preceding that. It was that Britain's intellectuals had fallen out of love with their old liberal tradition and adopted statist socialist beliefs. And then he said, if you want to change that, there's no point going in trying to go into politics and uh, trying to, to change it from within. That was his advice to the man, uh, Anthony Fisher, who would later become the founder of the IEA, because Fisher initially wanted to become a politician. But Hayek told him, on the basis of this paper, um, that that is not how it works, that politics takes place within certain constraints, ideological constraints, the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and that's something that a politician cannot really change. They can act within it. They cannot really do much about the boundaries. So he told Fisher, you need to push the boundaries themselves. You need to talk to, you need to reach the opinion formers of, of the country, the intellectuals of the, of the country, very broadly defined, being defined in, in the sense of people who work in the area of ideas, can be anyone who works in education, in the media. And, um, told him you need to get those people on board. You need to revitalize classical liberal thinking here. And do you, do you have any sort of sense of the think tank landscape? I get the sense that think tanks have become more important, particularly in America, where it feels like the universities, a lot of intellectual life might have taken place in the universities. But now the free market or right-wing ideas have been pretty much driven out of the universities now the think tanks is where some of the actions taking place. Do you? I mean, I don't know your work at the IEA, I guess. So, do you have any sense of what the think tank landscape is like in the current UK intellectual climate as opposed to back then? That could be true in in some cases that universities becoming quite stale, unexciting, and that therefore think tanks naturally fill the gap. Although there are, of course, think tanks which are also very much in line with the uh, the, the, the dominant climate in, in universities, are think tanks that are very much under social justice warrior. But that's side. fine. And, but that's uh, fine. Obviously, yeah. I mean, they can do they can they can yeah. do their thing. I'm not actually aware of the left wing think tanks. Which would they be in the UK? Well, there's the New Economics Foundation. Oh. They are the sort of deep green anti growth anti-consumerists, um, authoritarian environmentalism. And um, there's also the Institute for Public Policy Research, IPPR. There used to be a social democratic center-left Blairite think tank. They now seem to have gone full Corbynista. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't aware of... Well, then there's really... CLASS. CLASS is a, a socialist think tank. 
And do you ever do you ever meet and discuss and debate with people from these sorts of places, or do you very much plough your own furrow? That can happen at public events. That uh, if you want, depending on what kind of event uh, you want to have, it could be that. In, in some cases, it makes sense to have different panelists who agree on the basics but disagree on some aspect. If you want to go into greater depth, then that would be the way to do it. But if you want an event where you have a clear clash of ideas, then that would be the way to do that. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but I have to say, I think the IEA seems to be on the back foot at the moment because right now, you know, your socialism is becoming you know, trendy or popular or seems to be... Yep. You know, a lot of people seem to be talking about it and feeling it has life. Why has that happened? What's going on there? It's a mix of things. Firstly, there is, of course, the issue that free market policies have always been counterintuitive. Everyone is intuitively a socialist. Once you, there are many, a lot of people on our side who, if you ask them, how did you discover your ideas, most of them will say, I used to be a socialist, but then... That never happens the other way around. Or you wouldn't even ask a left-winger, how did you discover left-wing ideas? Because left-wing opinions are simply the default opinion. You don't ask a lefty, how did you become a lefty? You just naturally are a lefty. And that's why... Well, just explain that. Why are you naturally a lefty? I mean, I agree with that. But just, just take that step. Why does one naturally start out life on the left? There is a book on that which is called uh, Why We Bite the Invisible Hand, The Psychology of Anti-Capitalism. And there the author explains that quite well. His theory is that uh, it, ha it's, it has to do with evolutionary psychology. Our minds have evolved in a tribal setting when our ancestors for hundreds of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers lived in small tribes. And uh, our economic intuitions are conditioned by that. If you think of uh, hunter-gatherer tribe, their economy, if you want to call it that, is all a group effort. Everything is consciously directed by the group. They decide things together. They decide how to, what to do and how to distribute the spoils once they have whatever caught a mammoth or whatever it is that they, that they do. But economic activity is uh, purposefully directed. It's some, something. It's a communal effort. There is something in our minds that wants to extrapolate from that setting to the wider economy, and also in 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 the sense that that our own families, our own households, or the way we interact with friends is, if you want to call it that, socialist. In a sense, yeah. that you wouldn't have monetary exchange and prices within the sure. household. And if somebody if somebody isn't contributing, you still support them because you know blood is thicker than water, whatever the whatever the correct expression is. I kind of agree with that, but I do think I think we seem to have very. I mean, from an evolutionary point of view, or wherever it comes from, I don't exactly know, but wherever it comes from, I think. We do have this hardware-wired sense of fairness, and we're very aware when we've been treated unjustly, and we spot even a small deviation. So that kind of leads to a left-wing view of the world that you want everybody to have the same, because that's fair. But at the same time, it leads to a right-wing view of the world, because nobody likes somebody who gets more than they put in. So a lot of people are actually quite opposed to this idea that people should get benefits, for example, or high levels of benefits when they say, well, you're not working, why should you get something back from the system? That's not fair.
That's right, yeah. You, there are certainly conservative intuitions as well. That's uh, an advantage that, uh, that conservatives have relative to free market liberals. I wouldn't describe myself as a conservative. I'm a classical liberal. And uh, I think conservatives have that advantage. They can appeal to intuitions. We can't really. Our argument is not so much about free riding and, and people being lazy. It's, it's more the argument that even if you had a society of saints where everybody wants to contribute actively and wants to further the ends of the group even then socialism wouldn't work collective organization wouldn't work because because it's simply a matter of uh, the complexity of of organization you can run a small group in uh, in in that way through collective decision making coordinating everything you can do that in an israeli kibbutz uh, a, t- a tight-knit community where they have maybe a hundred people and they decide together what they want to do, what their economic activity next year should be, whether they should uh, plant more of this uh, grain or more some some other grain, simple economies and uh, small groups. But it's just that once an economy reaches a certain level of complexity, you can no longer consciously steer it and control it. We need to rely on market mechanisms then. But just to bring you back there, because I was very struck by something you said, which is that conservatives are this, but we sort of free market liberals are that. And it reminded me, my father was a conservative, uh, and I was always very struck that he had, nonetheless, quite a lot of views which I would regard as surprising for a free marketer. For example, the idea of you know, privatizing the post office was a complete anathema to him. He just you know, thought that was disgraceful. This was clearly a state organization. You know, yeah. The queen's head was on the stamps. And how could you do this? So how would you distinguish the line of thought that you're part of from... We need to get into a bit of definitions, I think, because we're going to have to talk about what is socialism. Yeah. What is free market liberalism? Is that what you would describe yes. yourself as? Yes. And what is conservatism? And maybe what is libertarianism? There's so many isms around here that we could go on and on and on. But what are the useful distinctions to make before we sort of get into discussing socialism? Um, conservatives would be, well, first, a classical liberalist is uh, simply somebody who believes that most social life should consist of voluntary arrangements and voluntary transactions. The state should set a few basic rules of the game, enforce those, but otherwise leave people alone. Now, what exactly that means, of course, there's always uh, some room for disagreement at, at the margins, but that's the basic idea. And that can include the possibility you, you can have a society where most people are very group-focused and, and patriotic, have a sense of community and togetherness. And that's something that a classical liberal would not have a problem with, but they they would say it's not something that the government should deliberately try to foster and impose. Whereas a conservative there, I, I, I guess, would be more likely to say, no, this is something which you deliberately have to create through government policies. And I guess your example there uh, this being the Queen, the head of state, therefore this cannot be left to the market, would be an example where a, a liberal, a classical liberal would say, yeah, so what? If uh, if there's a market demand for stamps with the Queen's head on them, then 
the market will naturally supply that. But if people would rather have Ronald <laughs> McDonald on the stamp, then that's their choice. Yes. Okay. I sort of get that. I, I think we do disappear into all sorts of definitional problems because, of course, we have the Conservative Party, which doesn't seem particularly classically liberal these days and maybe doesn't seem all that conservative to uh, to people. But again, it just depends what you mean by the term, I suppose. So what, you know, we, we sort of came to, the idea was that we would have a talk about, particularly about your paper, about about socialism and what is real socialism. I mean, that was the main main idea today so so what is your what is your definition of what do you think people mean when they talk about socialism okay uh, firstly my own definition i don't have a, a particularly exotic definition myself i i stick quite strictly to the dictionary definition which is that socialism is uh, an economy in which the Means of production are mainly publicly owned and in which economic activity is mainly state-directed, publicly, collectively organized. That's the, the dictionary definition, and I stick to that. I, I don't want to get involved in, uh, in semantic discussions there. It's more my opponents who, who deviate from that. They implicitly, at least, define socialism in terms of the outcomes they would like to see. And... Uh, no, I don't get that. How, how do you mean they define it by the outcomes? Well, if you use the dictionary definition, the government owns, or, or some public entity, uh, the means of production are, are collectively owned, then clearly North Korea would be socialist. The Soviet Union was socialist, according to the dictionary definition. But very few socialists today would accept that. They would say, oh no, that wasn't socialism, or that isn't socialism, if it's an example that still exists. That's because they define socialism in the sense of outcomes they would like to see and what they would like to see is a, an economy which is democratically organized where ordinary workers control their economic destiny where it's the little guy the man in the street who has a say over how the economy works and uh, since socialism doesn't turn out that way in practice socialists would then say, oh, well, if it doesn't produce those outcomes, then it cannot have been real socialism. Whereas I would say, no, you have to, your definition of a system cannot include an outcome you want to see. Right. Whether it produces those outcomes yeah. remains to be seen, but you can't work that into your definition. Otherwise, that would be like the, uh, the Gary Lineker definition of football, because he once jokingly defined football as... 22 men chasing a ball for 90 minutes and in the end the German team wins. <laughs> so he was working one possible outcome into that definition but if you if you use that definition the German team could argue we've never let, lost a real football match because the moment they lose <laughs> it's not the that real definition it cannot be real. And if, if you put it in, in those terms it becomes clear that's a logical fallacy. Your definition has to be outcome neutral. You can argue public ownership of the means of production will lead to an economy where the workers will be in control of things and people feel that they have a say over how the, how the economy works. But that's, uh, that's your assertion. Whether that's true or not remains to be seen. One of the things I heard argued, like you hear these things on television, on the radio, I can't exactly remember. But the argument seemed to be going along the lines that it's not state ownership of the means of production that's important. It's state control. And we don't need to own it anymore to control it because we have discovered 
that it is possible to control things through laws, through regulations, and once the state takes about 40% of the economy, it's incredibly powerful in the economy because, for example, if I'm a firm making whatever or providing whatever service and one of my customers is very likely to be the government because the government makes up 40% of the economy by definition. So now the government says, well, okay, I may be only 20% of your business, but that's an important part of your business, right? Yes. So it's a condition of my doing business with you and here's my list of policies that you now have to adopt as part of your policies. And, you know, you see that in international aid where Britain might say, well, we would like to give you, we would like to give you aid or we would like to do a deal with you or whatever. But there are certain outcomes that we regard as very important. So as a condition of our providing these, you know, here are the things that you have to do. So maybe, I mean, I, I don't know what you think about this. Do you think that, that there's a sense that... <laughs> Maybe they're just trying to avoid having to pay for the nationalization costs. Or maybe they're thinking they can find this hybrid system between, between a free market model and a socialist model where they get all the benefits of socialism, which is to say they get to control the outputs as they would like them to be controlled, but they don't have to fall into... Well, you know, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the problem that Hayek identified. Well, do you want to respond to that, or do you want to talk, sure. uh, or do you want to talk about your paper about the GDR, which presumably is about the best form of socialism that you could possibly imagine? Yes, um, yeah. Just to go back to to your point, uh, that was uh, that's been a long-standing discussion. Uh, started in the in, in the thirties and forties when uh, the the Austrian economists um, Hayek and Mises said, if you look at fascist economies they may not be socialist in the sense that the state owns the, the means of production, but they are nonetheless state-controlled. It would be the government telling them what to produce and in what quantities, and that too then is a form of a state-controlled economy, even if it is not socialism according to the dictionary definition. And you could apply that line of argument to... to uh, you, you could certainly have a, a state-controlled economy even though the state is not the sole or even the main owner of the means of production. If you look at Venezuela today, that's not an economy which is organized like the Soviet Union. They don't have five-year plans. The, the majority of, of companies, maybe not of the economic output, but, or maybe even that, are technically privately owned. And that's what a lot of socialists are suddenly discovering now, saying, <laughs> aha, therefore it cannot have been real socialism. But... They are certainly state-controlled in, in, in the sense that the most basic things, most basic decisions such as how much to charge for a product, prices, that is set by the government. And you would have the government making investment decisions, deciding which sectors should expand, which sectors should, should shrink. And it is certainly, therefore, a heavily state-controlled economy. Do you think, then, on that definition that China, in that sense, is a socialist economy? Because it seems to, as far as I can tell people state well it's a very capitalist economy and yet they do seem to accept or seems to be integral to the whole thing that the communist party does direct where a lot of the activity will take place where a lot of the development will take place where a lot of you know they'll decide in broad terms where they want the efforts to be focused yeah it's certainly not a free market economy it it's sometimes described as that, but that's because we compare it implicitly to the way it was under Mao Zedong. 
And yeah, relative to, to that period, of course, it looks very capitalist now. But I would, I would say Hong Kong and Taiwan, those are the market economies, the parts that uh, split off from mainland China at the right time. Those are market economies. China itself is not. And yet China seems to be, economically at least, a success story. For the time being, but uh, first, it's relatively easy to have catch-up growth on extremely low level. In per capita terms, China is still not a rich country. They have made enormous progress, especially in terms of poverty alleviation, and that's uh, absolutely amazing. But then it, it has to be said that if you start from such a low level, and if you get the basics right, if you protect property rights, if you have a, a halfway functioning legal system, and uh, combine that with an educated workforce, it shouldn't be too difficult to get from being very poor to being about the, in line with the global average. Right. Whether they can get much beyond that remains to be seen. Because at some point they will hit a buffer and then they will either have to liberalize or they will become a permanent uh, middle-income economy. Yes, I think China is... I'm not, I'm not a China fan in, in all sorts of ways in terms of its internal repression, its treatment of the Uyghur, its treatment of Tibet, its sort of strangulation of Taiwan, and its treatment of its of its citizens. But it is it's fascinating to see whether or not the system the economic system can continue to be successful because clearly it has been, you know, a huge success. But as you say, that's during a catch up phase. And, you know, we have had many cases where from the outside looking into the Soviet Union, that appeared to be a huge success. Yeah. And looking into other economies, you think, wow, this is amazing what they're achieving here. We should, uh, you know, we should respect this and admire it. But then later on, we discover that, oh, it was always inevitable that yeah. such and such would happen. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're slightly blind, I think. It's very hard to tell exactly where all this is going, well, which, is, which, is, which is not to say it's going to end in, end in disaster. I just think it's extremely unclear. Mm. Yeah, although we, we do know more about China than we did about the Soviet Union, because uh, in, in China we can at least look at GDP figures and uh, and see them as more or less reliable. Uh, in the case of planned economies, the problem was that you didn't have market prices. You didn't know how much a consumer would be willing to pay for those products, and therefore you just rely on production statistics. They can look impressive if you're just interested in crude output numbers, then, yeah, Soviet figures from the 30s look impressive that, that they went from uh, producing almost nothing, having almost no industry, to being at the level of a, a global superpower. But if they had tried to sell a lot of their consumer goods on, uh, on world markets, we would have seen, oh, hang on, no. Yeah, well, well, we, yeah, well we, we did buy a few Travents, I think, when, when, when the wall came down. Because they, yeah, yeah. and that was that was maybe that was maybe about it. Okay, so so tell us about tell us about this paper that you've done about uh, about sort of a counterfactual history in the in the GDR and 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 why you why you wanted to write it uh, and why you decided to to use a counterfactual. Yes, that's because. Well, first of all, the paper is about a fictional. GDR in which a parallel universe in which German reunification doesn't happen. Instead, after the fall of the wall, a period of socialist renewal starts. A group of reformers come to power in a democratic election. 
and they uh, tried to democratize that economy from from within because that was there were parties which really said that at the time some of the the leaders of the resistance movement were socialists they were not they didn't want reunification with the west they didn't want the introduction of a market economy they wanted a democratic gdr and uh, in this alternative uh, history they come to power it's a way of showing that socialism firstly always fails economically and it always leads to authoritarianism regardless of the intentions of uh, the, the people who are in charge it's not that it was just because, because these were bad people that seems to be the the conclusion that uh, a lot of that that socialists conventionally draw saying yeah it got hijacked by the wrong people it it would be like an animal farm you have the the thuggish pig napoleon taking over but if they had driven out napoleon and his gang it would have worked out okay it was all a matter of the personalities and that's the way socialists t- uh, usually think of uh, of real world examples of socialism you had bad people in charge and whereas i'm saying no there is a reason why those uh, those societies turned out that way it's just that if you make that only about real world examples it's pretty hard to prove what the motivation of people was it's hard to look into their minds and say no actually this socialist leader was pure of heart they had noble intentions that is hard to reconstruct what exactly motivated those people that's why i've chosen this format of a, a fictional society where i can just assume that these are pure hearted noble people and you chose the guardian uh, sort of long form reads as the way to present it presumably because you think the guardian would be the most sympathetic to this new revolution or was that just a little joke both but some of those uh, f- fictional guardian articles and that, that's uh, the format of the paper it's 12 it's a series of guardian articles 12 articles which follow this this uh, socialist renewal process and starting with great enthusiasm uh, saying they're finally learning what real socialism is like and then when when it deteriorates they start to make excuses and and so on some of those guardian articles are adopted from real guardian articles that's one of them is about a guardian article by Seamus Mill about Venezuela when uh, they started protesting because of uh, shortages of food and medicines and he just couldn't comprehend that that didn't that wasn't supposed to happen in his mindset that Venezuela was a people state the people are in charge how can they protest how how can the people protest in a people state are they protesting against themselves or what makes no sense is this the, the article where <coughs> where the idea was that uh, protesters can come from the right and be sort of the privileged protester yes okay. yeah, he he I tried to to, to, to uh, make up a narrative like that that they were at the same time that these were just the old elites resenting their loss of of privileges and trying to reassert that and at the same time thinking that they must have been created from outside that they are CIA funded stooges and um he had to find a way of somehow othering them these couldn't just be ordinary citizens who were just protesting because there were food shortages and medicine shortages and that cannot happen so he had to somehow uh, demonize those groups and that's an article which i've adopted in this case there is a, a protest movement in this uh, hypothetical gdr and i'm using this article i'm just replacing venezuela with gdr and changing a few uh, place and time specific references why is it 
inevitable that if that if you are that if you do have decent idealistic people, what is it that makes it so hard to make it work? First of all, there is even if uh, you didn't have repressive measures, and in my paper you, you also get those, but they come in later. Um, but even before it becomes actively repressive, it becomes technocratic. You don't have the kind of grassroots democracy that uh, socialists like to talk about, that the man in the street gets involved in planning the economy. That doesn't happen. The effort here is simply too, uh, too great. It would. Yeah, most people find turning up for an election once every five years more than they can bear. Well, exactly. And uh, it is already the case with the scope of politics that we currently have, the scope that the government currently has, that uh, most of us aren't very engaged with politics. Uh, we tune in every five years, but that's about it. And the idea that on this basis, you would have more engagement if the state did even more. If on top of already organizing the country's healthcare and pensions and education and infrastructure and, and whatnot, that you also that you'd also have nationalized media companies and energy and and railways and all the rest of it. Uh, that's just absurd. That the, the man in the street would take an active interest in in all of those sectors. And presumably, and, and is the idea that the reason that socialists today think that democracy is so important for their movement is that because it's supposed to substitute for the price mechanism? Is that is that the idea? Yes, although to some extent, it's uh, there are those who just talk about nationalizing a few companies, but remaining otherwise a market economy. If it's just that, you might still have something like market prices. There, uh, in yeah, but that always strikes me as saying that well, the way we're going to make socialism work is that we're going to run it like capitalism, which feels yes. like you've yeah. kind of missed you've missed something out some somewhere. Yeah, I, I guess if uh, once a sector is fully nationalised, you don't have um, market pricing as as such anymore. So it would be political decisions, right? And so to make that work, in order to have enough information in the system, you would need some sort of democratic input to say well what is important to us, and you do that instead of through through having consumer preferences, you do that yeah. through having voting preferences. Is That, that seems yeah, to be exactly. the basic yeah. idea. Yeah, that's uh, what, what um, socialists today like to talk about. Uh, if you read Owen Jones's articles, for example, he is a big fan of nationalization, of course, but he also he's quite keen to distance himself from the nationalized industries of the 1970s. He said those were... It's almost like it's like a small-scale version of the argument that real socialism hasn't been tried. He's saying real nationalization has never been tried. He says, look, what happened there in the 70s with these was that these were these nationalized industries were run by bureaucrats in from Whitehall, and uh, ordinary people felt that they didn't have a stake in them. So it wasn't really it was nationalized but not democratized. You have to have to get the wider public involved. And that's what I'm trying to explore in this alternative history paper, that uh, how would you actually do that? That, uh, first of all, there is, of course, the issue that we, ca we cannot replace market prices as a source of information. We might value all sorts of things, but what if we can't have everything? How do we make trade-offs? How do we set priorities? In a market system, it's pretty simple. We express our preferences through the purchases we make. If we're prepared to spend more on beer than on wine, then, well, that's a signal 
uh, to producers produce more beer, less wine. You don't have to articulate it. You don't have to find a reason why that is. You don't have to have a community gathering where the beer enthusiasts and the wine enthusiasts are fighting it out. It's just individual decisions that we make and that you cannot really substitute. Um, there is that. But then also the the running of a, of a company, let alone an industry, is... Uh, it's just inherently dry and technical. Most management matters are dry and technical. It's, it's not exciting. So therefore, the idea that you could get large numbers of people actively involved strikes me as absurd. You would have to be sitting in meetings the whole time. Well, plus it's a huge it's a huge imposition on the people because now instead of doing what they want to do, they're being asked to sit and engage in this process where presumably they would feel they have better things to do with their time. Yes. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so you would get self-selected groups. Of course, you would have some people turning up. If you now said uh, everyone can be on board of an of an energy company or a railway company, but that isn't necessarily a good thing because you would then get the obsessives and the cranks. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, you get the very worst people. I mean, you could argue that happens in democracy at the moment. Is that you have a pretty weird bunch of people who want to be MPs, yeah. uh, but. Uh, Yes, you have exactly that problem, don't you? Is that you have the person who's prepared to sit up till till eleven at night until everybody else has finally given up in exhaustion, and then they then they call the vote to get whatever you know policy that they that they want to get through. Yeah, exactly. It it, it attracts a, a certain kind of person. Uh, there is just a selection bias automatically going on. The the sort of person who likes attention and approval. Well, I think that's putting it kindly. I think it attracts the kind of person who, the person who ends up taking the decisions, is the person you least want to take the decisions. Could be that as well. But just to go back to your original question, why mm. does it turn authoritarian? So my paper it first of all turns technocratic again, right. not yet repressive. It then also becomes repressive that socialist system, and that is simply because an, a socialist economy is a group effort, a, a group endeavor. And whenever you are part of a, a group endeavor, you can no longer just do whatever you like. So this podcast here is is just your project. You can work on it in the way you like. But if you had some podcast collective and with 12 other people, you would have to coordinate your work with them. If you have a, a slightly eccentric way of working, then you can do that on your own. Not so much when you're part of the group and have to coordinate it with them. And in the same way, a socialist economy is is a team effort. If you are part of a socialist economy, then there is a, a five-year plan in place, or, or however it is organized. I'm, I'm sticking to this traditional formula with five-year plans, could be something else. <laughs> but uh, either way, there would be some plan in place which counts on your contribution. And that means you can now no longer just do whatever you like. There is a five-year plan which states... You have to work at the Trabant factory in, in this part of East Berlin, and you, you cannot just then say, oh, actually, I'd rather move to, to Leipzig or to Karl Marxstadt. Right, or more to the point, you can no longer leave the economy. I mean, actually, just to, just to move back, I mean, one of the bits of the paper that really I thought was, I, I really liked because I felt it was putting quite a strong case for for the socialist point of view. And it's, it says the big difference between a capitalist economy and ours is that ours is a collective endeavor. It says once you're part of a collective endeavor, you can no longer automatically just do whatever you like. 
And then this yes. was the bit I liked. He says, we all know this from our personal lives. If you have a spouse and children, you no longer have the flexibility that you had when you were single. If you work with a team, you need to behave like a team player. And it's, in our personal lives, we all know, know this. And most of us act accordingly without even thinking about it. It's just what you do. The same principle applies to whole economies. I thought that was, I thought that was putting the case pretty fairly for the collective mindset, which is that it's the right thing to do to care about other people, and that in our personal lives we do this all the time. But if I understand what you're saying, is that that really only works on a very small scale with people who are very close to you, and that once you go past a certain scale, it's just, it simply breaks down. Well, you cooperate with people in a capitalist economy as well, of course. But it would be on a case-by-case -case basis. Once you've signed a contract, uh, you have to fulfill that contract. And that's not just a legal thing. Even if you could somehow get away from the legal obligation, there would still be the, the reputational pressure. And uh, most of us would also just think, I've signed this, I've committed to this, I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, that's why even if you just give your word and it isn't enforceable, you would still feel guilty in most cases, of, of, uh, of not fulfilling your, your obligations. So, of course, people cooperate in, in a market economy as well. But it is, firstly, on a case-by-case on a -case basis, and it is with specific people and specific organizations rather than a commitment to the community as a whole. It's You, you don't get up in the morning thinking, today I'm making a, a contribution to British public life. It's the nation as a whole that I'm, I'm caring about here. You, you would think, uh, I've promised that person that I'd be there to record the podcast. Uh, right. I'm, I'm not going to pull out now, even if I might rather go to the pub. But uh, And this is your point then, is it, about the technocratic society? Because now you need a technocrat to decide what it is that your duties will be. You need somebody to decide that for you, to organise because once the price mechanism has gone away, there's nothing to organize other than some technocrat somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And then, so, okay, so it goes technocrat, and then then why does it need to go authoritarian? Well, to enforce those commitments to the wider community. The uh, the reason why initially the, the Berlin Wall was built was because of the requirements of the planned economy. It, they found it was impossible to plan the economy when, when people were, first of all, moving around, but especially moving abroad. That's uh, why freedoms were taken away always in, in, uh, in socialist societies. It wasn't that the people in charge were all just evil psychopaths who thought, I want to control the population for the sake of it. But it was quite systematic. It was related to what was happening in the economy. For example, in the Soviet Union, they banned emigration early on. You were banned from leaving the, uh, the Soviet Russia quite early on after the revolution. But initially, you could still move around the country internally. That stopped as soon as they imp imposed the first five-year plan in the late 1920s. So the moment they really moved to a planned economy, that's when all sorts of other freedoms also had to go. That's how it turned authoritarian. Then, uh, once you do that, you have to enforce it. You might tell people you can't leave Moscow now, you can't just go to, to Leningrad. But what if somebody does? You need a system of, of checks and controls and some punishment if somebody does violate that. So that's how socialist uh, societies have 
historically turned authoritarian. It's it's not that people in charge were, were, were all just bad people. Those are the requirements of a planned economy. And I'm drawing that out even more strongly by having people in charge who are who were resistance fighters, who were picked upon by the authorities in their own personal lives, who therefore really have no interest in replicating that. And nobody could doubt their commitment to freedom. And they find themselves that reluctantly they just have to do it because otherwise their economy cannot work. So the incentives are sort of inherent in, in the system that's been set up and inevitably people have to respond to to the incentives within it. Yeah, and it, there is an argument that, I don't know if this is, this is true, I'm not a historian, but I've, I've read the argument that Partly, the Berlin Wall was built due to pressure from the, uh, the 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 state planning commission, which drafted the five-year plans, because they were saying, "Look, how are we supposed to plan this economy? Um, we have a five-year plan here, which says so and so many people working in that industry, and now several thousand of them have disappeared. This makes our plan worthless. We cannot plan an economy in that way. So, do something. <laughs> do something, and then well, and then, then do no, something. Well, no, it does make sense if people if people are leaving in qualified people are leaving in, in, in huge numbers, then it will be extremely difficult to plan the economy. But don't you have something like that happening in the capitalist EU, where large numbers of people have left uh, Lithuania and Estonia and Poland, I guess, and Romania, I guess. Doesn't people moving out of these economies damage these economies just the same? Not just the same, but a brain drain is, of course, a problem for any type of economy. It doesn't matter how it's organized. It's uh, just that in a market economy, you have uh, the price system coordinating adjustments. You would, even if um, you didn't know exactly why those people are leaving or or even uh, that they have left, you would just notice a certain type of labor has become scarcer and now wages go up and you would then maybe as an investor try to do something else where you no longer need that kind of skilled labor you would look at okay what what is still available in ter- in terms of resources and uh, you would get quick and instant adjustments through the price mechanism the price mechanism would tell you we no longer have as many skilled computer programmers as we once had because a lot of them have move to, to Britain and Ireland. So you, so you still have a problem, but, but at least you have a more flexible system for, yes. for addressing the problem, whether or not, you know, that doesn't mean the problem is going to go away or that, it's, that it ceases to be a problem, but, but, it, but at least maybe you can find a way to, to address it. I mean, I gather, I was, I was looking at this because I, I visited Estonia recently and I was there for, I think, three days, so now I'm an expert. But that was one of the things that quite a number of people who I just was chatting to we're talking about was the brain drain. So I was looking it up on the internet, and apparently it's 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 leveled off now. But whether or not that's long term or short term, I I have no idea. But I was struck by this freedom of movement does seem to be a great thing. But particularly for us British, you know, we do get the benefit. A lot of people coming here with lots of well, your good self, for example. But I just think, gosh, there must be a lot of economies in the world would say, well, gee, thanks for you know, we've we've taken all this time to train up these engineers and doctors and whatever. And then off they go to uh, to the United Kingdom, and that must be uh, that must be extremely difficult for them. Yes, although it's uh, it's a bigger problem when education is fully state funded, because then people have the the government can quite legitimately say, well, we've trained you, we've invested loads in you, so now can you at least put something back? 
Yes, and I think you could legitimately say that, couldn't you, say that you had spent, I don't know, how long does it take for a medical student to go through college? I mean, it's about seven or eight years or something like that. And so I guess the British state might say, well, how could you enforce such a thing to say that you have to stay in the NHS for a certain period of time? That just seems to be impossible. Um, well, there are arrangements where you have, uh, where somebody agrees to pay your tuition fees and you agree to work for them for, for a specific period. So th there's nothing wrong with that. You can have that on, on an individual basis. And uh, I can't see why the NHS shouldn't be able to do that. But then it would be an agreement between an individual and a company or an organization. And whereas in a, in a socialist economy, it would be the deal between you and society as a whole. That means you, can, you cannot leave, literally. No. Right, okay, so, so you're saying that, okay, so the deal would be something like, we will pay your tuition fees and you don't have to pay them back if you work X years or something like that, and the person can take the deal or not take the deal. Yeah. Right, okay. So, I mean, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the paper. I thought oh, counterfactuals, I thought, oh, I, thought it was, I thought it was great and I thought it was quite fair. I think that was your point, is that even with even if you stacked all the cards in their favour, it would still be impossible to make a socialist system work. And I guess it, it's coming out of the insights of Hayek, who you said was sort of the unofficial founding father of the IEA. Yes. But I guess we've known about Hayek and his ideas, and the, in, the intellectuals in society, the economists in society, thinkers in society, they've, they've known that socialist states face these problems for years and yet now socialism is becoming super popular is it really becoming popular or is it just a way of attacking the status quo because they feel the status quo has let them down i mean i'm just trying to work out if corbyn gets into power which must be a better than evens chance that he will you know are we really going to see socialist ideas attempted to be put into place or is this just talk because I guess, you know, I thought that the Brexit thing was, well, they'll never vote for, for Brexit. But then they did. And I thought, well, they'll never vote for Corbyn. Well, then they may. And then, well, they'll never try and put socialism into practice, really. Well, I don't know. So I just wondered what you thought about that. You know, what's animating all this and where is it going? Yeah, I guess that, that leads back to uh, your initial question about uh, why, uh, what, what's, what's happening now. Why is the free market side on, on the back foot. Uh, I'd say for, for many years it was, as you described, uh, it was more a sort of anti-status quo thing, but not actively pro-socialists, the, uh, the left's ascendancy. When, when I was an undergraduate, pretty much everyone in, at university, even though this was the econ department, was on the left, but few would have said, here's a great example of socialism that we should follow. It was, it was more anti what we had, anti-globalization in particular, anti-consumerism, anti-corporations, but not so much putting forward an alternative. And that is what has changed in uh, in recent years, at, uh, at least here in, in, in Britain with Corbyn mania. And well, to, to an extent, even before there was this uh, dreadful book by Russell Brand, which oh, yes. was in, in a very uh, weird way, also prose, which you could describe as a socialist manifesto of sorts. And... Um, yeah, what, what happens is that they, they find ways of distancing themselves from previous real-world examples of, of socialism by, by just saying it's not, gonna, it's not going to be like that. And in that sense, yes, I could imagine that we would get uh, an attempt to, to move to, to socialism here. It would have to be very consciously 
the emphasis would be on it will not at all be like the Soviet Union. It's, it's uh, just that since the Soviet Union fell out of fashion, socialists have always said that about every example. That's how the whole Venezuela mania started, when that country becoming so so fashionable in, in Western circles. started really in 2005 with a speech by Hugo Chavez, in which he said, because he initially, in, in his first years, he wasn't particularly socialist. He was keen on redistribution, but didn't... actively nationalize large parts of the economy apart of course from from the oil company anyway but that was when that was the starting shot when he said what we've done so far is quite good but not enough we want to build a socialist society but by socialism i don't mean the soviet union and went to to great lengths to distance himself from the soviet union saying it will be completely different we will put power in, into the hands of people and all that and uh, that's what's what's so interesting that uh, in in a sense you wouldn't need a parallel universe you don't really need this fictitious society you could just look at those real world examples where you really had leaders who tried as hard as they could to make it completely different from from the soviet union that was the motivation of the the venezuelan leaders they were very aware of what had happened in the soviet union and tried hard not to replicate that but if you look at their state propaganda now and also the the remaining western apologists they sound just like soviet propaganda from the 30s there's saboteurs there's hoarders it would be just like the anti-kulak propaganda in, in stalin's days and they're hoarding grain they are causing the shortages and in, in the same way you now get uh, the venezuelan propaganda saying there are these these uh, bloodsuckers who are boycotting our economy they're causing the shortages and i follow an account on, on twitter which is quite grim which is some um, venezuelan inf- law enforcement agency and they sometimes post pictures of how they arrest business owners saying this person here enemy of the people uh, we found they had empty shelves in their shop but they had uh, meat uh, in somewhere hidden yeah, hoarding and, sugar or whatever, whatever, exactly, or whatever, whatever the offense is but it's not just in not, not just in england or in the uk it's it seems like bernie sanders and uh, in the US it's becoming quite acceptable to well the democratic party seems to be moving pretty hard left at the moment and it remains to be seen how popular that's going to prove but the whole system over there seems to be i don't know what's happening to it at the moment with with Trump on the one side uh and the social justice uh democrats on the other side the whole system there seems to be all over the place it's not something we've seen before yeah it's therefore that makes it even more unpredictable how it will turn out i guess uh, both in whether it's in the us or here the most benign thing maybe that could happen if we had a a, a genuine implement uh, attempt to implement socialism would be that you would get something like in france in the early 80s with mitterrand who was president who um was leading a coalition of the socialist party and the communist party and they really tried to nationalize large parts of the french economy and massively increased public spending and later money printing and it was over in 2 years because investors were fleeing the 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 french currency was crashing and they realized this isn't going anywhere let's well okay i mean that would be that would certainly be the most optimistic uh, uh way of looking at it so Well maybe we you know maybe maybe that's enough for today I I think we've we've covered most of the issues and that's been that's been really that's been extremely interesting actually and thank you very much for that so is there anything that you're that you know well what's the next thing for you 
Well, at the moment, I'm working on, or, or rather, I've, I've finished waiting for the release uh, of a book on, amongst other things, the things that we talked about, on uh, the history of, well, not so much socialism as such, but especially the reception of socialism by Western intellectuals over the years. So specifically, the claim that this example wasn't real socialism, that example wasn't real socialism. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the history of that and I'm showing that that claim has only ever been made retroactively when an example of socialism has already failed or has already been widely discredited. You'll find that uh, over, th over the years, whenever there was an example of socialism that seemed to work briefly, Western intellectuals were waxing lyrical over it mm. for a while. But then when the details emerged, the gulags, famines, people fleeing, all that, when it became, when that example, example became a liability for the socialist cause, then retroactively they suddenly abandoned it and redefined it as not really socialism but uh, often the same people who a couple of years before would have said this is brilliant this is what we should emulate so i'm i'm starting with the soviet union which was extremely popular amongst uh, western intellectuals in the 1930s in particular where you had literally thousands of British, American uh, and, and other academics traveling there, going on guided tours, coming back uh, saying this is absolutely wonderful. They're building a new kind of society which is not based on profits. This is an example of working class democracy. Um, and then from the 40s onwards, retroactively distancing themselves from that example. Then in the 60s, the same thing happening all over again. Except that this time, the, the, the new utopia was Maoist China, where you had, again, thousands of Western intellectuals, and not of French figures, but relatively prominent Western intellectuals, waxing lyrical over Maoist China, uh, saying, right, the Soviet Union failed, that wasn't really socialism, but this is it. Now mm. they're getting there. This is a proper right. workers' and peasants' democracy. And then on a smaller scale in the 70s, uh, it happened again when Maoist China, of course, also then fell out of fashion at some point, uh, all abandoned that. But then on a, on a smaller scale, you have the same thing happening with Cuba and oddly Albania. You have these recurring patterns of there, there being a, a utopia that, that everyone is, is fawning over. Then a period of, oh, hang on, that's not quite the real thing, looking for excuses, mm -hmm. sort of interim period. And that is followed by a period when uh, the, the consensus is that that was never socialism and that to say that it was is a cheap straw man. Right. And how many, so how many countries and how many, uh, how many attempts at socialism have you, have you looked at in the book? Well, I can't look at all of them. There have been too many and not all of them are that well documented. There have been over two dozen attempts if you count all of the Warsaw Pact countries individually and the various African and Latin American socialist uh, attempts and, and Asian ones. They have been on every continent attempts. Uh, I'm looking at the first chapter is the Soviet Union, the second one is Maoist China, then Cuba, and then I think I've, well I can't, can't remember the order, but I've, I've definitely got Albania in there, I've got Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, 
Yes, that was quite shocking to me when I realised that even Cambodia had its defenders at the time, which seems, in retrospect, quite shocking. Yes, in that case, it was not a huge wave. This, In this case, it wasn't thousands of people, but it was a relatively high proportion amongst specialists of that region, um, meaning Southeast Asia scholars, that academic community. Within that community, it was a very high proportion of people who said, yeah, there's, there's some teething trouble, but uh, they're building a better society and it's, it's, it's going to be great. Amazing stuff. Yeah. So when does, the, when does the book come out? In about two months, I guess. So maybe about the end of the year? Hopefully a bit earlier. A bit earlier, okay. Well, I'm a bit impatient about it. but Well, good luck. Uh, thank thanks. you very much, Christian. That's been, that's been extremely interesting and thanks very much for your time. No, thank you.